The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green. I'm Mike Leone here with Colin Drew of DailyRoto.com bringing you the Golf DFS show here on the Fantasy Sports Network. Before we get into this week's event, the Honda Classic at PGA National, Colin, let's uh, look at last week a little bit and break down what went right, what went wrong. I know for me, right off the bat, what went wrong was I didn't have very much Bubba. Uh, Bubba Watson, of course, took down the tournament one by two strokes, really played well all four days, particularly the second day on. Uh, he, he played phenomenally, had the pink driver going. Uh, what was your takeaway of Bubba and just anything else you saw last week? Yeah, I mean, thought the Bubba thing was interesting. It's a little frustrating. Both Bubba and Kevin Na actually were guys that um, I just kept playing, even when they were playing well below like their baselines all through the end of last year. And it never paid off, and I even like lingered on a little bit earlier this year with Bubba, and then like I was finally just done with it and had enough chasing, you know, the glory of the past. And obviously that ends up being the week he comes back and wins, and it was pretty funny. I mean, he was talking about how he, you know, with withdraw from the event if it interfered with the celebrity basketball tournament, and it was like all this stuff that just felt like uh, it was not a good week to play Bubba, and it turns out turns out it was, and people who played Bubba definitely got rewarded. They certainly did, and uh, this week, you know, we've got Gary Woodland in the field, and the the Bubba Watson, you know, that was his second strong tournament in a row, of course, obviously much stronger winning. We've seen Gary Woodland have a good start to the season, and uh, a couple of these guys out here who have, you know, strong long-term histories, but for whatever reason, whether it's personal issues or health, I know like Bubba's weight was way down last year, uh, we've seen them bounce back to start the season, and uh, I think it, it's cool to look at some other guys that might fit this mold of players with really good long-term histories where we know they have this talent. It's just a matter of materializing that on the golf course. So are there other guys you see that might fit this mold and uh, you could be ahead of the curve uh, before their, I don't want to say breakout, I guess bounce back would be the, the correct term. Yeah, and I think the, you know, the way that the projections over at Daily Roto are set up from the data golf guys is they're using a blend of um, kind of like a two-year long-term form and then a shorter short-term form. And they're kind of looking at all of that and factoring that into the projections and the probabilities, whether it's fantasy or the, you know, the betting stuff. And uh, I think that's the the right way to do it. And the thing that is always in the back of my mind is knowing that, that this is the approach that the projection system we're using utilizes, like, what could be some things that would be missing kind of from that? And I definitely think that injury is one of those things that you're not able to kind of know when a player is playing through something in a, in a modeling environment. And so I, I think that, um, you know, one of the guys that, or two guys that I think fit that bill uh, a little bit are Rory and Jim Furyk, uh, who was playing through a big wrist injury last year. I, I don't think Furyk's played enough to really have any signs that, you know, He'll be back to the cut maker that he used to be. But that was a guy that really had a down season uh, last year. And then I think that, you know, Jimmy Walker is another guy that um, I'm still not ready to pull the trigger on him in general. But he's a guy that's been battling mono for quite a while. And, and so all of that bad data is sort of in his rounds from last year. And it's going to take a while to weed that out. And so um, I think when you know about 
some of the stuff that might be going on in someone's life that's feeding into that bad data. Uh, I think that, you know, that's something that you might want to take into account kind of above and beyond the model. I know there's also some interesting guys uh, that used to be really highly ranked in the world in Adam Scott and Russell Knox that have um, fallen off quite a bit, but might be showing some, some flashes. And so um, those guys might be parallels to Bubba as well. What do you think? Yeah, we saw Adam Scott make the cut right on the number last week. I believe he missed a two-footer on 18 or on his final hole. One of his final holes, he missed a two-footer, which would have guaranteed him making the cut. He came in, I think, at plus two then instead of plus one, but the cut line ended up moving to plus two. But if you looked at our recent strokes gained trends tool on dailyroto.com, you'll see that he did gain strokes off the tee. He gained strokes on, in terms of approach as well. And when he's going well, he's a really strong ball striker and uh, another week where we've got him sub 8k and it really makes him compelling especially uh, you know we'll get into the course history here but he's someone who's got pretty strong course history here at at least the last couple of seasons uh, at at PGA National so uh, I think Scott's really intriguing it's just one of those questions and we're going to get into some more game theory but He's a bit chalkier now, so your reward on being ahead of him bouncing back isn't as much as it was uh, like a week ago if you had gotten him at a bit lower ownership. But uh, as far as last week, you know, for me overall, though, it wasn't that great of a week. I think uh, fading Dustin Johnson in a high-stakes tournament was one of the better things that I did. It was just that fade in and of itself didn't end up, you know, super rewarding, even though I think it was the right move based on where the ownerships fell, just because, you know, McElroy didn't play that well. Uh, if you had Thomas or Spieth, you picked up some points, but it wasn't a crazy advantage. You saved some salary, but overall my mass multi-entry strategy didn't go all that well. I had, uh, you know, a ton of exposure to guys in the 7k range. A couple of the guys that I didn't have much exposure to or any though were Bubba, Kevin Na. So, uh, it, w- it was a disappointing week for me on the whole, but, uh, you know, my boy Tony Finau played very well, so I was happy to see that. Uh, I had about 20% of him mass multi-entry, so what I did salvage for last week was mostly a result of Finau playing well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm not entering as many lineups as you, but usually in the 15 to 20 range, and um, I, in general, it was a bad week for me, uh, the last, like, between 1500 and 2000 bucks. But it was it was actually only the second losing week of the year, and it was interesting because I had a hundred percent Cantlay on my lineups. Um, it just felt like with the projection that we had on him that he was such a slam value, and so if you had told me that he finished as well as he did with the exposure I had, I would have thought it'd be a really good week. But I think the flip side of the coin was uh, definitely was overexposed to Molinari, and so from a six to six perspective, you know I think. My best team was a Cantlay DJ team that was really pretty chalky and, you know, it, it was able to, to min cash, but it wasn't like there was nothing interesting enough going on with it to do any serious damage unless, uh, Cantlay had won the event. So overall, it wasn't a great week for me, but I think, you know, that's definitely going to happen in golf and that's especially going to happen if you MME. And I think we'll get into an interesting kind of topic on, you know, who is the right personality to MME? Like, how should you go about MMEing if that's what you want to do a little bit later on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can, we can pick up, you know, part how you decided to lock Cantley in, how I set mine up. But first, let's just take a look at what we're, you know, looking at this week with the Honda Classic at PGA National. Back on East Coast time in Palm Beach, Florida, 
a regular size field and cut C70 and ties after two days. It's a par, only a par 70 course, 7,140 yards though. So, uh, in adjusted yard per par, it ranks 29th in terms of distance, the third ranked narrowest fairways on tour and, uh, known for the bear trap holes 15 through 17, which accounted for 18% of all bogeys, 33% of all doubles and 40 percent of all triples or worse on the championship course so on the champion course so lots of water balls lots of variants and that's going to play into mass multi-entry strategy so anything that you're taking away in terms of the course setup this week Colin in terms of whether you know a specific golfer type that you want to target or just anything that's affecting your macro roster construction well, I, I think one of the first things I'm, I'm making sure I set my alarm nice and early. You know, we don't have <laughs> yeah. that late sleep in. If you want to wake up for the withdrawals, uh, which which we definitely do, then you got to wake up early. Uh, we haven't been burned by withdraw in a while, but it's definitely something that happens throughout the course of the year. And so, definitely trying to remember to wake up and just check that all your guys are playing. Obviously, if we notice anything, you know, we'll let our subscribers know. Um, as far as like the, the course setup, I definitely think you kind of talked about the profile. Uh, that makes sense for a golfer. Um, maybe like a little bit of a comp to RBC Heritage when you look at some of the guys who have done well in the past. Definitely need to be able to avoid the big number. Uh, I think there's a lot of variance kind of in the, the scores at this course. Uh, but, you know, some of the good guys who are, you know, accurate and good iron players are the guys who are able to avoid that. And obviously... Ricky Fowler was the defending or is the defending champion one last year. He played well tee to green, but he also, his putter was scorching hot. And that's something that I think, you know, when the greens are harder to hit, when the courses are challenging, like you either need to be guys who are always hitting the greens or you need to be guys who are kind of able to get it up and down for par. Uh, Paul Casey was actually notable last year, uh, was the best player in the field from a tee to green perspective, but uh, lost so many strokes on the field that he did, he barely, you know, popped on the leaderboard. So I think those are kind of, I mean, obviously world-class golfers, but two of the types of, you know, profiles of players that I'm considering in different formats. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting. You, you noted the, uh, that Adam Scott is one of those guys that fits that mold of a bounce back, kind of like that we've seen with Bubba Watson. Well, he won the tournament two years ago and, he was, you know, it's crazy to think, you know, he was on an absolute tear at the beginning of the 2016 season. Uh, someone that you almost couldn't fade at really, really high prices. And he was someone that I remember fading two years ago coming into this tournament and uh, at really expensive price tag just because I didn't think it was worth it and he justified it. And now here we are two years later, Colin, and, you know, he's sub 8K. So it's pretty wild to think about. But uh, in that tournament that he won, he hit, you know, the water twice on one hole and still ended up crushing the field uh, in 2016. That year, Sergio Garcia came in second. We um, do have some good course history on a guy like Sergio Garcia, as I noted, came in second two years ago, a 7-7 seven seven in cuts, two top tens. Uh, who are the other guys in terms of course history that you're looking at this week? As, and I do want to note that course history is something that we like to look at. It's a good tiebreakers, so to speak, but our default model powered by data golf on dailyroto.com only weighs, but course history about 5% short term adjusted scoring averages, about 20%. And then the long term adjusted scoring averages is the most predictable aspect of the model weighing that about 75%. 
Yeah, I'm generally not on team course history. And even from a course fit perspective, I think there are, you know, oftentimes few golf courses on tour where something would matter. You know, there a lot of them, you know, share so many things in common that you're just looking for the talent of the golfers and trying to, you know, sometimes trying to fill airspace talking about the different stats that matter and, and things like that. But I like to look at it to see if something sticks out as far as a profile of a player. And, uh, you know, a couple of the names that jumped out to me were Luke Donald, Ian Poulter, Jason Duffner, Charles Howell III. Uh, so Luke Donald, 10 of 10, made cuts, five top 10s. Poulter, 6 of 6, with one top 10. Duffner's also made every cut. He's played here nine times, and Howell's made 10 out of 11. And these guys, to me, are uh, guys who are really accurate off the tee. They have okay distance, but they're definitely not bombers. They're more uh, the the kind of shorter, accurate players and good iron players. And so all of that kind of fits with some of the stuff that we were talking about and, you know, kind of like the, the ball striking being something that matters a lot. Um, obviously, that's an important thing any week, but it seems – a little bit more so, uh, a little bit more so this week than most, I'd say. All right, let, let's have that mass multi-entry conversation that we've been alluding to. We'll talk about it both just from you know an overall macro perspective, and then also uh, try to have some specific takeaways for how we're going to approach this week. And I know for me, I don't have a specific multi-entry strategy that I'm going to play every single week. And when I say mass multi-entry, uh, for me, I'm talking about uh, the tournaments where I'm entering, you know, up to 100 to 150 teams, sometimes 50 teams. So entering a lot of teams and how I'm managing my exposures across golfers, how I'm setting my lineups, like the decisions that I'm making. And as I said, it really depends on the week. You know, some weeks, if I feel like there's a really good value, I'll lock in a player. I'll go 100% on a player. And that's sort of how I'm creating leverage on the field is if this one player does really, really well, then I've got X amount of opportunities to put together the perfect lineup with this player. You did it with Patrick Cantlay last week. Uh, the one tournament I was successful doing this was the Masters last year with Sergio Garcia. And one thing both these guys had in common is they were around the average cost of a roster spot. Uh, they were both really strong values that had legitimate chances to win the tournament, but they didn't have to win to be uh, a part of a perfect lineup. So if I'm going to lock a golfer, Colin, uh, it's going to be somebody that is generally priced around that average cost of a roster spot that I feel like has the dynamic where they have, you know, you if you're locking someone on your team, you, they, they should have the upside that they have to win. But I also like the fallback of, hey, this might be the third most expensive golfer on your team. If he top 15s, it's still not going to preclude you from possibly landing on uh, the tournament winning lineup somewhere through your mix. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things for me about mass multi-entry is I think it, it sounds appealing, obviously, and people want to, uh, you know, take shots at some of these prize pools that have really high-end payouts, and they don't necessarily think about, you know, the variance associated with it and kind of how consistent you have to be with that type of approach in order to, you know, be successful over the long run. And especially with golf, I think it's something that's really tough because it's not like basketball or hockey or um, you know, you're not playing it every night. And so, you know, what one week of those other sports is like two months of golf and, and it like can really start to grind on you. And I think that, you know, 
because of that, I think people overreact to small samples and, you know, they say, well, this didn't work last week, so this was the wrong approach. But if you put the right thinking into your approach ahead of time, then like one week of results doesn't matter. One month of results doesn't matter. Like you need to be looking at things over the course of a year, uh, in my opinion, to really evaluate it. So I think that like if you are going to be mass multi entering, you definitely need to make sure you're sticking within your bankroll. Uh, ideally, you need to be patient and be able to do it for like three to six months to a year and really stick with it consistently. Otherwise, you're really just riding variance. And obviously, the variance in golf is very high. The variance in GPPs in general and DFS is very high. And when you put those two, two together, it's a super high variance thing if you're just going to be dipping your toes in for one week and then reacting to what happened and, and going back to whatever you, you were playing before. Yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I like your comparison to other sports, particularly NBA, because I like to mass multi-enter NBA, but I, I look at NBA where I'm grinding out caches, you know, each night where I'm just on the right guys relative to the field. And because of that, uh, I, I have this advantage where even if I'm not winning, I can grind out a whole bunch of min caches. Whereas in golf, because of the variance, my exposures are spread out a bit more. And as a result, it's harder to make money just grinding out those min caches. You're really looking over the long haul, as you mentioned, six months, a year, play this out so that you can end up on some teams that are winning tournaments or coming in the, the top 1% and getting those, you know, taking advantage of those top heavy prize pools. So that's, that's a really, really good point. I, I did mention that locking a player is a strategy I'll do some weeks. What I did last week, I thought the edge last week was just in this macro roster construction build where I made sure that every single one of my lineups had one of the, our top six projected golfers on dailyroto.com in terms of uh, percentage odds to actually win the tournament. So I wanted one of those guys in all my lineups. And then I wanted to just pepper this 7K range that I thought was really, really strong. And, you know, the drawback to that was I had the wrong guys in the 7K range, even though I had a lot of those guys. And, and some of the sub-six guys did better. But uh, that just shows you there's different ways to create leverage. So, you know, one way is locking a guy and trying to build perfect lineups around this guy. Another way is having the correct roster build and then just spreading out on the good values. And, you know, in that sense, I'm almost not even worried too much about ownership in terms of the exposure of the guys I'm getting because I feel like I'm beating people with just a better construction and how I'm grouping golfers together one through six in my lineup. But there are weeks, I think this is one of those weeks where I might just, I might not have a forced macro roster construction. I just want to be very cognizant that I'm overweight on certain golfers in the field and underweight on other golfers in the field. Because I think from a macro roster construction build this week, uh, you can make a case to go studs and duds. Uh, you can make a case to go heavy, mid-high tier. You can go very balanced. There's just a lot of ways to build lineups, and I don't see an obvious way that's better than another. I think the way to get your edge in tournaments if you're mass multi-entering is to say, okay, you know, we've got six guys in the 7K range with similar projections. I'm going to be overweight on the guys with lower ownership projections. I'm going to be underweight, so own less than the field. Um, the other guys that have the higher ownership projections. And Colin, you're in charge of our ownership projections over on dailyroto.com, something that's very helpful uh, and useful when you're making these types of decisions. 
Yeah, and the ownership projections, even in the three max type formats, are something I leverage a lot. Um, I, I compare kind of the projections to the top 20 probabilities of golfers each week to create sort of a leverage score that I use to help guide some of my GPP decisions, in addition to our fantasy projections. Um, I think the other thing, you know, is, is game selection that goes overlooked a little bit. And there's kind of a bunch of different functions as far as what goes into whether or not a contest is going to be, like, profitable as a DFS player. Uh, but the, the field size is obviously something that increases the variance, but in theory doesn't really change, like, your ROI. Um, the rake itself is obviously something that can impact the ROI dramatically. And then the skill of the opponents is another thing that is uh, critical. So you can you kind of need to balance, like, the, the rake and the field size with who is likely to be entering that contest. And a lot of times those mass multi-enters with the big prize pools, like, all the best players are also multi-entering those, and you have, you know, the Jet Black X's, the the Mike Leones of the world who are putting in 150 <laughs> entries. So sometimes, if you're make, even if you want to make 20 teams, like you're better off doing it in a 20 max. Or sometimes those secondary GPPs that get posted have smaller field sizes. They're full of more kind of casual players, and the exact same results in those fields, uh, especially in the short term, can be a lot stronger than some of these top-heavy GPPs with the kind of glamorous prizes. So it kind of depends what you're looking for. But I'm, I'm definitely in DFS to try to make money, and that's you know something I've had success at in the past. And so all that stuff you should be thinking about if that's your goal. Definitely. So we, we've covered here on going for the green on Fantasy Sports Network brought to you by DailyRoto.com. You know, some of the ways we attack mass multi-entry, uh, I, I've been talking more in terms of specific roster construction type stuff, uh, creating leverage. Colin brings up some really good points about understanding the variance of the situation, being very cognizant of your game selection so that this is something that can be profitable over the long run because it's not something you want to just dip your toes into one week because at that point you're just at the the whims of variance and at this course in particular a lot of variance with all of those water holes of the bear trap there 15 through 17 uh Colin, let's try and take those some of these mass multi-entry concepts and uh look at this week's tournament in specific and we can identify some good chalk some bad chalk players so off the bat, who are you looking at? You know, who would you consider good chalk? And we say chalk; these are the players we expect the field to to own. And sometimes it's okay to own some of these players too, because you can't pass up every single good value. So that's why it's important to distinguish. Okay, this is the chalk that I'm willing to eat and have ownership to, even though the field's going to be high. And and these are the guys that are worth being underweight on or, or even full fading because they're just not worth the combination of salary value and ownership percentage. Yeah. And the way I would kind of think about it the same way as you, you kind of have the, the good chalk and then the full fade and the underweight guys. Um, the good chalk would be guys that they have a reasonable chance of winning the tournament or they're underpriced, um, they're so underpriced compared to the, you know, their probabilities or our projections that even at the high ownership level, they still make for a better play, um, from like a percentage perspective than the other, the other players. And I think we'll get into the, you know, specifics a little bit later as far as some of the golfers we like. But generally, like the guys who are priced at 9K plus in a given week are all capable of winning. And like if you're making a ton of teams there, you know, you might want to take some stands here and there if you want to. But uh, they're kind of guys that you might want to have in your mix. And, you know, they're guys if you have no exposure to them, then they could bust you in a week when they win the event. Uh, So I think that, you know, in general is a, a range, you know, some of the favorites where they're kind of all good chalk. It's just a question of to what degree they are. 
Um, and then this week specifically, I think guys like Jason Duffner, Daniel Berger, Russell Knox, Adam Scott, uh, based on their prices, even though I expect them to carry, you know, 10 plus percent ownership, even as high as 20 percent. Um, and in different formats, it could get higher than that by the time, you know, lock rolls around. I think all those guys are players that, you know, even though they're going to be chalk, quote unquote, I think that they're players that you'll want to have in your lineups. Yeah. And you mentioned everyone above 9K and, and as you know, can qualify as good chalk on a week. And that's because you really do, if you're spreading out over so many lineups, you need to be cognizant of the amount of, you know, win equity that you have in those lineups. And I think it's a very dangerous strategy to not have at least some exposure to most of the top 10 golfers. For example, we have a finished probability model. So you can sort and see, okay, here are the top 10 golfers in terms of win probability. Uh, once in a while, if I think someone's going to be massive chalk and just doesn't have a good price and, all I'm hoping is that they don't win, then, then I'll be okay fading them. But looking at things at a whole, you need a certain amount of total win equity or you're just really cutting yourself short because you're not going to win a tournament if you don't have the winner. Like that very rarely happens. I, I, I can't think of the last time that happened, Colin. Uh, I mean, I know some, I guess some tournaments where it's high scoring if you have a really good 6-6 to team, but I think it's been a while since someone, you know, especially with these field sizes nowadays, to really take down a tournament without having the actual winner is yeah, pretty I difficult. Yeah, think, I think if there's a couple of guys, like uh, the other week uh, when T- Ted Potter won, depending which tournaments you were in, you know, he was so low-owned, and then there were a bunch of guys who finished tied for second who all had mm-hmm. really, really good performances. And so you could, I think there were GPPs you could win kind of that week in that type of scenario. But generally what you're saying is right. I also think it depends, like, you know, if you're managing variance over the course of a year or, or over the course of a week. I know some of the, the highest, you know, stakes players in fantasy uh, will go in 100% on a golfer in their MME approach. And that's, you know, maybe in the dogleg, it's 5000 or $6,500 of entries. But like to some of these guys, as crazy as it sounds, it's not that much money to them. And so they can take that stand. And like last week, I think that despite the result, like Rory was a better play than Dustin Johnson, given the ownership and your like expected value or your ROI would be higher over the long run playing Rory in that situation. So if you, but like it's definitely a super high variance to to fade Dustin Johnson or or anything in that type of situation. So I think that's why you know you see different types of players approaching MME different ways, and that's what makes it so interesting, just based on the size of your bankroll and what you're putting in each week. Yeah, and personally, the way I'll play it in the mass multi entry is I'll try and stabilize that variance a little bit by you know being spread out on a guy like Dustin Johnson, even though he's a bit chalkier because his win probability is so high. I don't want all my lineups to be dead if he wins. Whereas you know, conversely, in single entry tournaments, especially the higher stakes ones, I, I'll do the exact opposite. I'll be highly variant. I'll embrace the variance because I think the ownership ends up even higher sometimes on the chalkier players in these tournaments where people can only afford one or two entries. Uh, whereas in mass multi entry, you know, you'll get Dustin Johnson at you know forty percent instead of fifty five, sixty percent, and. It's still very chalky, but it's definitely a difference there. But let's take a look at the high-end uh, options that we have for us this week. Because I think it's interesting. A lot of times, 
we see ownership flooding to these more expensive golfers in the 10k plus 11k plus range whereas this week uh one thing i noticed is depending on which guys you look at but even those 9k type golfers are going to carry similar ownership projections and that goes back to they're not being one specific way that you have to build this week but up top most expensive golfer is going to be ricky fowler he's followed by rory mcelroy our fantasy model has these two very very close together our finished probability model which is just based off the adjusted scoring averages and uh, that model has fowler a bit more clearly ahead of McElroy. Uh, the interesting note there, though, of course, on ownership, we have Fowler currently projected around 28% and Rory almost 10 percentage points less. Yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. I think if the two guys were to finish tied for second, you know, most of the time Rory will have the slight edge as far as overall DraftKings scoring in that type of situation. So I think that's why you see Fowler a little bit ahead on the fantasy or on the probability model, but close on the fantasy model. Uh, you know, they they both have won here in the past. So it's something that'll be interesting. I know, you know, out of this kind of group of guys, uh, it seems like, you know, Rory's track record is a little bit more sporadic. And Sergio is kind of like the cash game guy that is really stable. And his results here have generally been pretty consistent and then uh justin thomas is another guy who's in this range whose results here you know two missed cuts but also a third place finish and i think all of that like the fact that most of these top end golfers um or the the top three at least have kind of sporadic track records here is a pretty interesting factor and speaks a little bit to the variance of the course that we were talking about yeah and then we move past ricky rory we've got justin thomas sergio Garcia, the other two golfers at 10.5 or higher. Garcia actually, you know, our, our top projected value of the range to begin. He's finished, you know, fourth in strokes gained TD Green in last year's event. Uh, in 2016, when he finished second overall, he was actually first in strokes gained TD Green. And he opens up a bit more flexibility in terms of what you can build around him. And uh, for the second straight week, it looks like there's a demonstrable drop off uh, after the 7k values to the sub 6k values. So that dynamic floods into the conversation of how much you're willing to spend on the top golfers. But uh, Colin, do you see yourself, you know, having to pay up for one of these guys, whether it's cash games or tournaments? Uh, Cause my initial instinct is that at least in tournaments, I think there's enough 9k guys that you can actually build some pretty compelling balanced lineups without getting into the 10k plus options. Yeah, I think that you can, and that's definitely not always the case. Uh, and so I'm curious as the week shakes, you know, how the ownership projections will change a little bit. Definitely check back close to lock or late in the day on Wednesday for the most accurate version. Um, as far as like a single entry build or a cash game build, I guess my gut would be to still start with Sergio in that type of format. Um, and I certainly have concerns about outright fading everyone in this range, but um, as far as like across my whole portfolio of lineups. Um, so I think as Sergio would kind of be the guy that I feel like has the most safety in, in general out of this group and the pricing, uh, you know, he still lets you grab some of those guys in the 7k range, you know, the 8k range where there are plenty of options and you don't have to really dip too low. So for cash game builds, I think that's probably, you know, where I would start. Um, I'm probably not going to be playing cash games this week. Uh, just with everything else going on. But um, I think that you can make the argument for kind of building some tournament lineups that are more balanced contrarian, like that lineup that you had success with the other week. 
Yeah, I had a, a lineup that was successful a couple weeks ago doing that, and one of our subscribers in the Daily Roto Slack chat that comes with the premium memberships, which you can get at dailyroto.com slash premium. We've got weekly, monthly, seasonal golf memberships available there. Uh, asked me about how do you get leverage on these expensive players who are the most likely to win but are, are also going to carry the highest ownership. And it's a very different question week to week. You know, a few weeks ago, I thought you could make this balanced contrarian approach. I do think you could do it again this week. But I will note that, you know, some of these guys in the 9K range, which we'll get into, Gary Woodland, Haddon, Fleetwood, have ownership projections around 20%, which was pretty reflective of the more expensive golfers this week. So I don't know if you're going to get the the leverage that you would normally get fading these expensive golfers. We do have Ricky Fowler with the highest expected ownership. So I probably would fade him in a single entry three max type tournament, since I don't think he's the best fit for roster construction anyways, but it's not such a high ownership projection that I'm going to fade him in mass multi-entry. Now, as we move on to that 9K range, as I had mentioned before, Colin, uh, we've got solid plays here, particularly in that trio of Woodland Haddon and Fleetwood. Yeah, I think there's merit to kind of all three of those guys this week. You know, right now from an ownership percentage, they they seem like they're kind of shaking out pretty evenly where I don't think any one of them will be notably more popular than the other. So I think um, from that perspective, if you have a strong lean or a strong gut, I think that you can definitely play the guy that you like the most without really worrying about getting too cute with the ownership. I know that for us, I think that uh, Woodland and Haddon, project slightly more favorably than Fleetwood, but it's all really pretty close and they're all in place. So um, I know the probability model, which takes into account a bunch of the European tour adjusted round data for Haddon is, is definitely fond of him and like him a little bit more than the fantasy model likes him. Um, so I think at the end of the day, Haddon and Woodland are, um, you know, slightly preferred, but really all three of these guys are somebody that I think will be in the mix. The one thing I'm really curious about is, uh, and it's rare that this ends up being the case kind of come lock is that right now Patrick Reed has an ownership projection that is below 5% and kind of talked about this range of players being all guys that are capable of winning an event. So even though we, you know, from a, a model perspective, we think that Reed is definitely a little bit overpriced. I think if he ends up coming in with that much leverage, then that's going to be a really strong GPP play in some top-heavy formats. Yeah, in terms of projected finish points, we don't have anybody with more projected finish points and a lower projected ownership than Patty Reed right now. And uh, you mentioned, though, that Haddon rates pretty well in the finish model. Even our fantasy, fantasy model, we've got him projected for the third most finish points, just not very many scoring points for Haddon and we've got a lot more for Woodland and how do you kind of marry those two together because at first glance I think you want the guys that can rack up you know we call them good DK scores the guys like Woodland that are going to rack up a lot of birdies and that's going to add to their upside but from a high-end tournament model where you need a high-end finish out of your guys generally to win tournaments in a weird way these guys that have lower projected scoring points but higher projected finishing points might end up overlooked uh, from a tournament standpoint. I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I'm articulating that 100% the way I want, but maybe you can kind of see where I'm going with it. I'm just wondering how uh, you decide, you know, when you get get this information, okay, this guy's rate similar to this guy, but one guy's better at scoring points, the other guy's better at finish points. 
Yeah, I think um, having the two models and being able to cross-reference them, you know, they're they're built independently. They they share some similar things about their structure, but they're built independently. And so when you have two models that both key in on a guy, I think that's a really strong signal that it's a, a really, you know, good play that week. And then when the models are completely divergent, uh, sometimes that's happened. They're a little, like a guy like Harkins early in the season, the models were divergent on. Uh, that's something where I might tread a little bit more cautiously. I think generally one of the, my favorite things, I, I talk about it like frequently, but with the probability model is that it's it's giving you a range of outcomes for a player. And that, it, to me, is a little bit more easy to think through than this just like linear, like this is the projected fantasy points. And so mm-hmm. I can then take that information, compare it with the ownership projections and start to think about, you know, the probability of different things happening. And so, um, you know, that's something that I'm I'm trying to do every week. I think that's something that in tournaments is, you know, really helping me uh, finalize decisions between some of these players. And so that's kind of how I think about using the two models. At the end of the day, you know, a, a two-point difference in the fantasy projection is, like, it's one birdie, right? So it's it's yeah. pretty pretty small uh, for the most part, and so I like having both of those data points. Yeah, and I think that's something where, like, let's say you're comparing Woodland to Haddon, where you see, okay, in the majority ranges of outcomes, Woodland's probably going to be better than Haddon because he's going to pick up more scoring points. But you do more consistently have this high-end outcome out of Haddon where we've got him around 9% for a top three, uh, whereas Woodland's more like 6.8%. So uh, I think that's, uh, you know, comes back to what you said, being able to visualize those range of outcomes. And actually these guys with the scoring points in a way I think make for better cash game plays than the guys with better finish points. Just, you know, once you get past the cut volatility, you want to take that into account. But just because within those ranges of outcomes, if they have a similar range of outcome, you're going to get more points out of the guys who score more, even if they don't get a high-end finish. Whereas in tournaments, you want to maximize your chances of these really high-end finishes. So it's really interesting. I think both are good plays in all formats. It's just uh, those were two made up for a good example of the split between the two models at times. And uh, is there anyone else you see in this 9K range, though? We've got kind of the chalky guys that we like, and then you hit on Patrick Reed as the contrarian type. I'm tempted then to kind of just skip down to sub-9K, where you've got Daniel Berger knocking on the door, had a really bad week last week, but uh, seems underpriced for his upside. Yeah, I think, you know, Knox, I think, is in play, like, as well. We kind of talked about him being a guy that had a down year last year, but previously was really high ranked in the world golf rankings and was possibly a bounce back candidate. And so he might be like a good chalk where he's still kind of in play despite those things. I think it's, you know, six straight events now. He's gained strokes T green on the field. And so that stuff should definitely be important. Um, you know, probably not a guy I'd build on my one team if I was, you know, only making one, but a guy that I might mix in if I'm making multiple teams and his ownership projection seems like it's reasonable enough. So I think him and Berger uh, are definitely guys that I'm interested in. And then Jason Duffner is definitely always one of my favorites. Um, I know I've mentioned in the past, but one of my buddies is uh, Duffner's agent. And so you can actually, he's actually on the no laying up podcast. And it's a really interesting listen. If you're interested in the, the golf kind of the business side of golf, and you can talk about kind of how we got into that field. But uh, Duffner's always been one of my favorites. It's a guy we talked about in the course history section. Who's played this course really well, obviously lives in the area, like a bunch of these guys do. And um, I think that, you know, a lot of times we're looking at Duffner as a consistent guy to make the cut, but he also has really strong top 20 equity. So, 
I think that, um, you know, maybe it's not as likely that he'll win the event as some of the guys who are priced higher, but as a second or third golfer on your roster, I think he can do a lot worse. Yeah, I think Webb Simpson, to, to a lesser extent, but sort of fits that mold here in this 8K range of a guy that has some top 20 upside and seems relatively safe for your cash game type lineups. And uh, if you're looking for a bit more cap relief, though, Rafael Cabrera-Bello, you know, once again, our model likes him for the third consecutive week. He's been, you know, fine for us the previous two weeks. Martin Keimer there at 8K. Uh, some of the more volatile guys in this range, and I'm wondering if you're interested in these guys in GPP at all. One, I know you definitely aren't interested, and I'm pretty sure not interested in any of the three, but I could see all three of these guys carrying some ownership for different reasons. One, Tiger Woods, just because everybody loves to play Tiger. Two, Ollie Schneider-Johns, who's you know a high upside, volatile-type golfer who, uh, as much as I like his upside, it seems like the DFS community see something in him that he just hasn't quite achieved yet. And then Stallings, who had a good week last week, and that recency bias might hold over to this week. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I think recency bias is definitely still there to a degree, but I don't know if it's there to a level that Scott Stallings is going to get carried away with ownership. No interest in him at all. Uh, I think Ollie is another guy that represents – kind of bad chalk as it relates to the probability models and fantasy models that we have over at Daily Roto. And when we were talking about that MME section, he seems like he would be a candidate for a full fade this week because he's getting heavily touted. I know, you know, Mayo and co are high on him. And so I think that Ollie would make sense to, to kind of full fade. And I'm still not seeing anything with Tiger that would make me want to play him, especially, you know, a, a course like this where the tee shots are very demanding. He has not shown the ability to find fairways consistently on some of the courses that are a little bit more forgiving. So those those three guys seem like fades to me. I think that Webb Simpson uh, presents kind of the most interesting dynamics compared to our projection and possibly getting a really low ownership. You know, I, I don't think there's a huge difference between the quality of golfer that Webb Simpson and Jason Duffner are. I like them both this week, but I think that Simpson, you can get at half the ownership, and that seems like outright that's a better play in tournaments. All right, looking at this sub-8K group, this 7K range, again, seems like it has a lot of really strong plays for the second and consecutive week, and that starts with Adam Scott at $7,700, someone that we identified already as good chalk. He's, you know, fits that Bubba Watson bounce-back type mold. He gains strokes off the tee approach last week. Uh, he has good course history here, and he's just underpriced for his long-term form. So uh, I do think that he's someone that you want exposure to in tournaments, even though he's going to be a bit chalkier. You're also going to want to you know heavily consider him for your cash games. Yeah, and I, I think um, he was the guy that we're definitely comfortable playing, and it seems like the this high $7,000 range is every week. It almost seems like it ends up being one of the more pivotal ranges as far as making your decisions. I think that interesting names that right now look like they'll carry ownership as well, uh, Chesson Hadley and Dylan Fratelli, um, who I think are, are okay as well, but they're guys that we might maybe bad chalk in the way that we wouldn't necessarily full fade them because the projections like them enough if you're MMEing, but they're guys that maybe would end up being underweight candidates. Um, this range is interesting. So I definitely like Scott. I think you can get away from him if you want, because there are some compelling names that give you a little bit of leverage that are popping in the fantasy model. If you can find and the probability model, if you can find a couple hundred bucks and Lou Ustazen is one of those guys that 
Uh, I'm drawing a lot of interest to right now, a guy that his swing is pure when his game is on. And I think that both him and Russell Henley, if you're kind of comparing the top 20 odds to their ownership projections, I think they project favorably in tournaments to Scott Hadley and Fratelli, though I definitely think that playing Scott is still, you know, in, in the, you know, I guess the optimal kind of builds is pairing him maybe with a couple of those other guys. Yeah, Keegan Bradley, another guy who's you know ball striking pretty well that can be used as a pivot in this range up at seventy seven hundred dollars. In the mid seven Ks, I've got a couple guys I'm tempted to play in GPPs that our model likes because I think they are underpriced on the whole, but they do scare me a lot uh, on this course. I could see a lot of water balls from uh, both Ben on and Thomas Peters, but our ownership projection around those guys just just about five percent, Colin. Uh, those guys I'm interested in a sprinkle. I think one guy that I do feel a bit more confident in uh, that I'll definitely have exposure to is going to be Emiliano Grillo. Yeah, and I think that Peters sort of fits the mold of, I mean, like a poor man's Justin Thomas as far as the course fit. And like Justin Thomas, we saw and miss a cut here two years, also finished third one year. And, you know, that type of outcome, if Peters is keeping the ball in play and it's kind of focused, definitely seems like, it's in play there. Um, I think there's a, a lot. I mean, you can make some really good all-European tour lineups. I know Bern Wiesberger is another guy that, uh, from a fantasy projection, he doesn't stand out, but he's only projected for a point below kind of Hadley and Fratelli, who are going to be super chalky, and uh, he carries kind of the same top 20 probabilities and maybe a third of the ownership of those guys. He's somebody that globally uh, made 25 to 28 cuts last year um, and started out the year a little bit slow, but I think that he would be a guy that I have, you know, interest in for tournaments and it seems like a, a really uh, nice kind of leverage play that can get you if you do want to get off some of the chalk in this 7,000 high $7,000 range. Yeah. And the lower $7,000 range, you know, really surprised to see Graham McDowell, as projected chalk, you know, he played well last week. He does have good course history here, and that seems to be what's driving that. But you look at the long-term scale there. There are just guys that are straight-up better golfers. So he's someone that I wouldn't mind full fading in this range. And uh, a direct pivot, Charles Howell III, we have. Uh, it's not super low-owned, but, you know, just under double-digit ownership. And he seems like someone that you could even play in cash games. He's a cut maker. Uh, he's got good course history here as well. I'm just really surprised to see the initial ownership projections a lot lower on Howell than on Graham McDowell. When I think Howell's someone that can be used in all formats, and McDowell's someone that, quite frankly, uh, could be full-faded. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It's uh, like the whole recency bias is interesting because I feel like when it ends up you know, not aligning to course history, people will kind of ignore it. But when it's someone like McDowell, who's also got a great track record, and you know he obviously popped off last week, uh, gaining strokes kind of in all the major tee to green buckets, like people are definitely more comfortable to to saddle up when it's a course history play that kind of aligns as well. So it, I mean, it seems like Howell should by all means be a superior play um, at lower ownership. Howell's another guy that I think by the end of the week, his ownership projection will get up there a little bit. It just, I feel like people, you know, part of that, what goes into those ownership projections is the kind of tout sentiment from fanshiresports.com. And I think sometimes people just get tired of talking about Charles Howell just because he's such like a, a strong cut maker, but he, he never does anything, you know, better than a, a top 
20 or maybe a top 10 for you. And so people just don't tout him as much when, you know, they have the shiny objects that they can tout instead. Yeah. And he just seems so consistently underpriced, at least this season that, you know, there's not much need to, to point him out. Everyone kind of realizes it and how he can be used. Um, I did mention that the values here in the 7K range seem a lot stronger than the sub 7K values. And that was the case last week uh, in our projections. It didn't play out a ton like that. Just some guys like Harkins played well. Uh, you also had Ryan Moore near the top of the leaderboard. Uh, this week again, though, I think I want most of my exposure uh, and my bottom, you know, five or six golfer to be in that 7K plus range. But Certainly going to mix in some of this sub-7K guys just because there's a lot of different roster builds you can make this week if you want to double up on some studs, triple up on the mid-high tier even. Uh, and just wondering some of your favorites in this range. I know our model, just because the price is so low, likes Kevin Tway down there at $6,600, uh, carrying a really low ownership projection. Uh, he fits that riskier type mold of these cheap golfers along with uh, Jamie Lovemark, J.J. Spawn, Wesley Bryan type. And the one guy that it feels a little bit safer is Stuart Sink in here. Um, this is someone that you're hoping to make the cut but probably doesn't have a whole ton of upside. Yeah, it's I don't know if it's the pricing or just, I mean, DraftKings is kind of doing things to try to, I don't know, just change the, the way that people are building the rosters. But it just doesn't seem like there's a lot in this range, and especially this week it doesn't feel like they're – is a ton that you necessarily want to pay up for. Um, one of the guys that we talked about a little bit, that super boring play, but if if his like game is on, might fit the course decently well, would be Jim Furyk. One percent ownership, twelve percent top twenty odds. Um, you know, I don't know what's going on with his health and that wrist injury, but uh, possibly if he is able to get back to the Furyk of old, that's a guy that sometimes you'd be looking for like a made cut from. I think that. Uh, William Gert, I think that, at, you know, really low projected ownership as well, below 5%, kind of 13% top 20 odds is somebody alongside the guys that you had mentioned, like Jamie Lovemark and Stuart Sink, that I think are in play. Um, but just in general, it, it feels like this is closer to a range to avoid than it is to a range to attack with, you know, Tway Sink and a couple of those other guys being the exceptions. Yeah, and if you want to make a couple dart throws on these guys, you don't have to have them in very many lineups to be overexposed just because uh, the ownership around here looks like it's going to be really, really spread out when you get to sub-7K. Um, I guess but before we sign off, run out of time here, Colin, uh, any other notes, whether it's a player you want to point out or just a roster construction, bankroll management type thing you want to share with the people? Uh, no, I mean, I'm pretty excited about some of the like tools and features that the data golf guys are continuing to work on. Um, in addition to the head to head round simulator, they're rolling out an event level one too to help bet head to head matchups there. And then we've also been working on a similar tool for top 20 odds markets. And so that's some of the stuff that, you know, I'm really excited to continue to dive into. I think, you know, it's definitely awesome. A bunch of the tools, if you haven't checked them out, really user friendly and they look great. And so I'm, I'm super excited about those. Yeah, and I, I know this is a golf show, but we do have to point out, Colin, you've got a, a big tournament this week. You qualified for the NHL DraftKings Live Final, which will be held this Saturday in Toronto. So about a 1-in-40 shot there at a 100K grand prize, a uh, field of 40 people. So 
let's wish Colin best of luck there as far as uh, the golf lineups go. Again, I think it's a really interesting week just because the setup allows you to build in a variety of ways. Uh, my lean when I get into these type of weeks is to go really, really balanced uh, with my lineup and try and capture a good combination of upside and safety. So I don't know if I will get up to Sergio, who I love, or if I'll build with a couple of those 9K guys that allows me to pepper all the 7K guys I like and not make too many sacrifices there. But that's going to do it for Colin and I on Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network, brought to you by DailyRoto.com. Make sure to check out your premium golf package, powered by Data Golf, over at DailyRoto.com slash premium. Thanks for tuning in, and best of luck in all your games.